Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. It's not so much that you step back and you don't participate, but you you have to really, um, you know, this is where you have to have done your due diligence on the person selling the deal uh, to make sure that they, you know, and, and they have skin in the game too. So it's, you know, they have money on the table. So it's in their best interest to make sure that, you know, it's a win-win for everyone. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Amazon best-selling author, chartered accountant and founder of the Freedom Warrior program, Selena Kilkarni. Our topic is syndications. We will be discussing the perks that come from them, how to pick the right one for you, how to invest into these and she'll be sharing her risk strategy and much, much more. Kukani begins by giving an insight into her background with syndication and how she comes across these types of deals. Syndications is something that I've known of and known about for years like, you know, obviously, Starting as an accountant, you, you heard it used as commonplace language and definitely around the, the topic of real estate. But it always seemed really elusive. Like I never knew how to quite access the deals and then the guys that had the deals, you know, you didn't really know them. And so syndications, you know, from my point of view, is a fabulous way to participate in real estate where you can not only get access to exceptional deals, but as a collective, you can command all sorts of economies of scale and um, the idea with syndications is it's you're focused on a single asset and so um, there's a group of investors that come together and pool their money to try and you know get a bigger bigger return in a shorter space of time. I've actually heard of them for quite some time now actually and I haven't personally delved into any of these and been part of one of these but it sounds like a great opportunity to get in because if you've just got a small amount but then you know there's a greater leverage in terms of getting a property with you know a group of investors as well there's actually a greater upside so what what's been your experience since investing into these yourself syndications is a really interesting uh, strategy and one of the great perks i feel is that you've got the ability to have direct security um, and access to leverage but you know, often these are deals that number one, they only come across your table if you are part of a very small network of known, reliable deal makers. Um, so, as a, an average investor, you know, you or I probably wouldn't even, you know, we wouldn't even see these deals. Often they're, you know, transacted off market. Um, and so, for me, it's a great way to participate in very lucrative, um, elusive real estate deals um, as a passenger and, you know, you don't have to worry about the day-to-day management of the project, you don't have to worry about managing any tenants um, and at the same time you get to participate as a 
you know, in, in what would otherwise be a, a return that, you know, is the playground of the ultra wealthy. I like the sound of that. So you've got a, a syndication that you've been involved in with over like 100 odd units here, which is, sounds amazing. Uh, and, and it seems like it's, it's a great deal here. Tell us a little bit of a background behind that one. For me, with any real estate deal, but particularly with things like syndications, I think the most important decision to kind of make before you even go in is, you know, who's who's the sponsor of the deal? Who's running the deal? You know, do you know, like, and trust them? Have they got a proven track record? Um, how have they, how do they manage? How do they communicate? So this particular deal that, that we're looking at here is um, someone that I've known for a while has a stellar reputation um, only works with investors within a referred small private circle. And because of uh, his reputation in, in his world, he has access to opportunities which generally don't even hit the market. And so what I love is that there's an opportunity to learn, to participate and to kind of be witness to how the project is managed. And generally speaking, like, um, typically these projects run from anywhere from two to four years, depending on, you know, what the, you know, outcome of the project is. But in this case, we're not talking about a, a ground up construction project. We're talking about the purchase of 112 units, um, built in the sixties already at 92% occupancy, but, purchased but well below market value because of the fact that it you know it was just a bit tired and poorly managed so the thing that I love about the syndication strategy the way that I do it is I'm not looking to take on a whole lot of risk and so you're going into the project and it's already cash flowing like that's the first part so there's already a cash return to investors straight away and then it's very clearly laid out in great detail in the documentation that comes with the deal, what the plan is in terms of how they're going to create forced appreciation in that project. So for example, if the project is purchased for 4 million and they can see that the rents are below market value, they can see that you know the purchase price is well below market value and that they can create you know anywhere from two to $4 million in forced appreciation, not you know, capital growth and waiting for the market to go up, but in today's terms, they can create that. Then there's so many different ways to look at it, but really what that does is it de-risks it. So there's syndications and there's syndications. Um, most of the syndications we're used to in Australia are, are really about, you know, ground up construction type projects. And, you know, my experience is they can be incredibly lucrative but from a risk point of view, if you put syndications on a risk spectrum, the sort of ones that I prefer sit sort of further down the, the lower risk end of the spectrum. It's interesting to hear that and I think it's really important that you've actually shared with us the differences between how these type of projects, for example, the development project where you go from ground up to investing into an existing one and the risks behind that. I probably want to explore that a little bit more in detail to understand and explain to the listeners as well the risks involved so it's very we, we we all you know i myself am very conservative as well and i don't usually like to take a lot of risk as well but everyone has a different level of risk how would you describe this to say investors and even myself the level of risk that you determine in these type of projects yeah it's a, it's a really good question and probably one that has lots of layers to it but 
you know, you know, I'm a huge advocate of being good at doing due diligence in general as an investor. Um, and I've got my own little, you know, five-star system that I've created in terms of like how I analyze deals. But ultimately, you know, what I've come to realize is that, you know, in, in, in our market, and, and it's definitely how I've created the bulk of my wealth, I've relied heavily, heavily, sorry, on a rising market. And that's great on one hand, because it means there's no barriers to anyone being able to build wealth. Um, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you can get in and you can use typical traditional property to ratchet up your net worth. But when it comes to these sorts of deals where I'm trying to create not only cash flow, but a, a reasonably good capital return as well, risk is all about the sorts of things that I sort of already mentioned, but like who's running the deal? What's their track record? Um, what have they done when things go wrong? Um, one of the things that's really important to me on a syndicated deal is they need to have multiple exit strategies. Um, so say, for example, you know, there are less experienced syndicators out there who will kind of just be hanging their hat on one way of getting out. We're going to buy for this, we're going to sell for that, and it's going to happen at this point in time to this type of buyer. The, the more sophisticated, experienced syndicate operators will have multiple get out of the deal type scenarios. And, you know, depending on the deal, they'll have all of that laid out for you. And they're exactly the sorts of questions that you should be asking as an investor. What if this, what if this goes wrong? You know, what if, you know, we have another shutdown with COVID? You know, all those sorts of questions. You want to be asking those pointy questions up front. But from my point of view, um, what I like about this particular deal that we're looking at is I have purchased units effectively in a trust. So I own, I have direct ownership of my share of the asset. Um, I'm getting a cash flow return from day one. Um, so there's no messing around. Like before I even commit the money to the project, I know exactly what the profit and loss for the um, apartment complex right now looks like. I can see that they've done detailed costings unit by unit. I know exactly what they're going to do. It's all pretty cosmetic stuff. There's nothing structural. Um, I can see comparative sales for what this is going to be worth in today's market, not, you know, whether, whether the market goes up, great, don't care. Like I just know. And the thing is when it comes to good real estate deals, and these guys, like this particular deal, one of the things I love about this operator is he knows to always leave profit in the deal for the next buyer. So let's say, for example, in this deal, the, the end value of the deal, if they, you know, if they renovated every single unit and did it to the highest degree was $8 million, they know to not take it up to that. They will bring it up to, say, six, because if you take it all the way up to eight, there's no juice in the deal for the next person. So, you know, all of those little tactical nuances and, you know, the way they think about how to structure these deals, they actually matter greatly. Um, you know, most people will want to squeeze out all the profit for themselves and then just sell the asset at, you know, retail price. Whereas these guys, they get that they're trying to leave some money on the table. So there's, there's so many layers to this, but I think that Risk is about understanding, you know, what is your worst case scenario? What is your best case scenario? Can I live with that? 
Um, do I like how the deal is going to be run? What sort of communication am I going to get as an investor? Uh, you know, what if what if everything turns to custard? What 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 are my what are my options? It's so important to look at that, and I totally agree. It's any investment that we go into, we got to make sure that there's plenty of exit strategies, not just one or two. You know, at least minimum three or four, just in case things do go south. And if that's the case, then at least there's so many different ways we can actually back out because if you're not prepared for any of these and, it, you know, touch wood, none of that does happen. But it, if it does happen, like, you know, pandemic just hits us and strikes us for whatever reason, at least we're well prepared and have very thought this out carefully because otherwise when you're scrambling, usually a lot of mistakes happen as well too. What's really interesting that you mentioned was leaving a little bit on the table because we're not dealing with just selling a home where there's attracting like a home buyer who's emotional. Obviously, with that market, a residential market, you know, you're buying maybe a million dollar home and, and you've renovated and it's worth 1.5, for example. Those kind of buyers you're attracting from an emotional perspective and they're going to be buying to live in for the rest of their life kind of thing. With these kind of things, this is a commercial transaction. So, I can understand why you'd want to leave it for the next investor or the next business person or developer who wants to go in there and have a little bit of um, additional, I guess, uh, gain at the end of it. But then if that is the case, then does that mean part of the deal when, when you actually go into it, you don't get as maximum return as possible? Um, does that mean also it affects the return on investment as well? Yeah, look, um, that is absolutely the case. I mean, if you could ride the deal all the way through to the finish line, you're obviously going to get a higher return. But I think the risk return balance constantly needs to be reviewed. Um, for me personally, um, I would be happier with a larger pool of potential buyers selling at a discounted rate than trying to squeeze out another 2, 3, 4% return but end up in a situation where my potential pool of purchases are small. And these guys that I work with, I mean, in my opinion, they are world-class investors. They're, these are people who there wouldn't be too many people within each of their niches that, that, that would do a better job than them. And so they're smart. You know, they've been doing this for 30, 40 years that they, they recognize that if you, if, you know, greed is a terrible, you know, emotion to have around investing as is fear. And a lot of them will position their deals so that they are leaving profit in it for the next, whether we're talking about syndications or other types of deals. If you say, for example, sell an asset at 80 or 90% of its market value, then you're going to have way more people interested in buying it than if you try and, you know, price it at top dollar. Like for example, when we sell our homes, we always want top dollar. Um, but you know, you're, when you're thinking about the way that uh, professional investors think, it's about de-risking. How do you reduce the risk on a deal? Coming up after the break, we discuss the behind the scenes work that goes into syndications. So he will often, um, you know, look at a property and then spend uh, a full month sending his entire team in to look under every nook and cranny before they make any so there's I mean the point I'm trying to make is before I even get to look at it there's obvious you know there's often six to 12 months of work that's gone into bringing that deal to the table. She shares the international location she loves so much she bought into it. It's just a very 
easy place to live. It's, you know, I really like it. So, you know, it's not ideal, but part of my thinking is would I live there? Um, you know, what sort of people want to live there? Are, are they a problematic tenant or are they someone who's just, you know, are they families? Are they reasonable people? Um, are they going to pay their rent? Those sorts of things. She divulges more into the differences between the Australian and US markets and what she currently needs from deals. If you compare this project with purchasing, you know, real estate in the Australian market, it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. The reason I go into this deal is I, I'm, I've got enough capital. You know, more capital isn't going to change my life. What I need is cash flows. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, property investor. Is your cash or equity currently earning you 1% to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a high return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Kukani shares further details on her 112-unit syndication, starting with how she found out about the deal. My trusted advisor or my dealmaker that brought this to the table um, basically has a very long, uh, long-built network of real estate agents, you know, funders, finances. A lot of deals will come to him through the banks. Uh, basically, the banks see that there's a property that's in distress and they will just take the deal to him to say, you know, will you take this on? Um, other times, I mean, there's there's so many different avenues that, you know, but, you know, his due diligence process is considerable. So he will often, um, you know, look at a property and then spend uh, a full month sending his entire team in to look under every nook and cranny before they make any cut. So there's, I mean, the point I'm trying to make is before I even get to look at it, there's obvious, you know, there's often six to 12 months of work that's gone into bringing that deal to the table. Um, there is literally uh, no stone unturned. They look at plumbing, they look at electrical, they quantify every single material that's going to be needed for every single unit. And they map out comprehensive, you know, basically a business plan on how this is going to be managed. Um, so with this particular property, um, I, I have a feeling it came through a bank. I can't, this one I did a little while ago is it came through a bank. Um, and so it, it never went to market. And um, this particular trusted advisor is a known closer, like reliable, ethical, all of that sort of stuff. And um you know, has has done a, a very good job in in converting this from a fairly rundown, underutilized building to um, increasing rents across the board. It's fully optimized and sold at a at a premium. So basically, you, you go in as a syndication, as as a group, say for example, to purchase say 112 units, and the exit strategy sounds like was to once it's finished its renovations and so forth, leaving a little bit on table was to sell it back into the market again with an uplifted value. Yeah, look, I mean, that's obviously the preferred strategy. 
Um, but working with these guys, depending on the deal, there's often other strategies that are sort of put in parallel as, you know, here's plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. Um, but effectively, um, you know, the, the way that the plan gets rolled out, you kind of leave it to them day to day to work out, well, you know, are you going to renovate unit one or unit 112 first? I don't care. Um, you know, the, the tenants are giving you grief about the rental increases. They manage that. Um, you know, from a from an aesthetics point of view, they've already worked out colour combinations, materials, they're buying in bulk. Um, you know, you're getting the economies of scale there. But I, I, I genuinely love being witness to the process. It's not that I have any interest whatsoever in ever running one of these projects. I can't imagine anything worse. But I love that I've got that buffet of deal flow. So say, for example, even with this one guy on this particular deal, once the project comes to an end, like if I wanted to take my original capital and roll it back into another deal, there's usually within three to four weeks another deal to roll that money into if I wanted to. But um, that's the sort of calibre of person that we're, we're sort of dealing with, you know, half a dozen deals kind of on the, on the go, multiple teams running each project, um, you know, plenty of uh, resources and capital to make sure the deal works properly. And these are not small deals. I mean, what, what kind of numbers are we talking about behind that? You know, for 112 units, I'm not, I'm thinking in Australia terms, but is this, is this actually in Australia? This one's actually in um, Atlanta. Um, which is, for those of people who don't know, is, is sort of part of the, the Midwest belt of the states. And part of the reason I really like that as a geography is it is really boring, plain and vanilla. Um, they're the sorts of places that you and I could live. They're not slums, and but nor are they the blue chip high end of the market. These are basically working class areas, um, highly sought after, high rental demand, lots of energy gone into where is this located, why will this be a success, um, what's driving uh, jobs growth, population growth, all, all that sort of you know economic and macro data that you would want when you get involved in these sorts of projects. But I've been to Atlanta you know several times and you know it's just a very easy place to live. It's you know I really like it. So you know, it's not ideal, but part of my thinking is would I live there? Um, you know, what sort of people want to live there? Are, are they a problematic tenant or are they someone who's just, you know, are they families? Are they reasonable people? Um, are they going to pay their rent? Those sorts of things. And it's really, really good that you mentioned that. I mean, that's the thing with, with investing, we've got to take that emotion out of it. And at the end of the day, if the numbers stack up, then obviously the cosmetics and the looks and stuff like that come at a later stage, especially when you're dealing with a very professional group of people, they will already know what to do. So, we don't need to know about those details kind of things to be involved in it. But as long as the numbers stack up, I think that's probably the key aspect that I took away from that one that you've just mentioned. Can, can we unpack as well then the numbers behind this? Like why was it such a good investment for you? The numbers at a, at a kind of a macro level were this was a, a, an asset that was getting purchased well below market value. 
There was bank leverage that was going to be applied to it. There was a, a limited amount of capital that was being raised by investors. I think that was about $2 million. The rest was all bank finance. And through that use of leverage, it was, it was a pretty low loan-to-value ratio. They were going to create some forced appreciation and then resell within three years. The thing that excited me the most about this deal and most of the syndications that I personally invest in is the fact that they are cash flowing from day one. So before they do anything to this, um, this property was generating a 7% cash flow return for me. So I think there's a bit of faffing about in the first couple of months while they kind of get in and get the deal, you know, under management. But from about the, the second or third month, I'm getting a cash flow based on existing conditions without, you know, anything being touched. By the time they get to sort of the second and third year, they may have put up some rents, they may have, you know, improved the building, but I know that my starting point is that 7%. Now, some deal makers will allow you to participate in the increased rent, rental yield that they create, and others basically sort of just cap it and just say, well, it's going to be this amount for the for the term of the thing. The other component to the deal, so there's always two parts for the sort of syndications that I like. There's the cash flow part and then there's the capital part. So in this particular deal, it was a 7% um, cash flow from day one and then another 5 to 7% capital on the back end. Massive depreciation benefits, which are allowed to get passed on. And I think in the um, in the deal I show, I'm showing you here, you know, if you invested 200,000, um, you were getting 7% preferred return and a $91,000 depreciation write-off in the first year, which is just nutty. And I can't even tell you now, but the, um, the loopholes in that market are just outrageous. So on $200,000 invested, you got 91,000 write-off in year one. So let's say you've got a whole bunch of other investments that are happening. One of the reasons people like these deals is because you just basically end up paying virtually no tax. So, but I like the idea that you get cash flow and you get that appreciation kicker at the end. So, the deal that I've most recently done, um, similar sort of thing. It was a, an eight percent cash flow, um, and as the rents improved, that was going to probably creep up to a ten percent cash return per annum, and then there was an additional. 8 to 10% uh, capital kicker at the end of the deal. Um, and that was a slightly longer syndication. It was, uh, I think, three to four-year time frame estimate. And I think here's the thing. You, you really have to trust the person who's running the deal because, you know, you have to trust their judgment on when is the right time to sell and who's the right person to sell to. And that's where, you know, you, you you do it's not so much that you step back and you don't participate but you you have to really um you know this is where you have to have done your due diligence on the person selling the deal uh to make sure that they you know and, and they have skin in the game too so it's you know they have money on the table so it's in their best interest to make sure that you know it's a win-win for everyone wow <laughs> it's amazing to be able to hear that and it, it sounds like a fantastic opportunity because one I want to just double check. Is that the ten percent net? So it's gross. It's not gross though. It's everything's all taken out of it already. After expenses, after taxes, blah blah blah. It's ten percent net. Wow. So you can imagine compounding that every year. Like I mean, not not from them, but like you know, you receive that ten percent income every year, and you just reinvest it again and again every year 
back into or even every month you're receiving it. The thing that um, I kind of think about in my world is this concept of yield drag. So if you get offered a really high rate of return, you get your money back and then you've got to think, oh, God, what, have I, what am I going to do next? And then there's a, a block of time where your money's not working for you. When you work that out over time, it, it can end up actually reducing your rate of return considerably. And I, I've seen this with um, a lot of investors that I've worked with. They go into a, a local syndication here in Australia. They get offered, you know, what seems like a really good rate of return on their money. But then when it gets averaged out over a two-year, three-year timeline, because, you know, you, the DA gets stuck in council or whatever, it ends up being a, you know, the drag on that return ends up being quite considerable. So, you know, the, the, the whole idea is how do you keep your money working for you consistently? And so in my world, the idea of getting an 8 to 10% net return, you can do that easily all day long. To strive for some of those higher returns, yes, you can do it, but you often end up in situations where, you know, you end up with a yield drag. So I love that I can just consistently build predictable income and participate on the upside when there's a a great deal without having to worry. Like I like the idea of not having to turn my money over all the time. Like I like the idea of having some short-term deals, some long-term deals, some mid-term deals. So, you know, a syndication for me is maybe like a medium-term deal of three to five years. But I like that I don't have to worry about it. It's set and forget. Do you know roughly what is going to be the actual final outcome in terms of capital growth on this particular? The way that um, a good syndicator will structure a deal is they will give you what they call a a PREF, uh, a preferred return. So say, for example, in this particular deal, there's a 7% preferred return. What that means is every year before anybody else gets paid, before the deal maker gets paid, you as the investor will earn 7%. So that gives you a little bit of downside protection in terms of your return. Um, Usually beyond that, the terms of how the profits and capital and income will be shared are all detailed in the, the, you know, the memorandum, the offer memorandum up front. So from an investor point of view, what that does is it gives you peace of mind that you know... um, you know, more or less what you're going to get up front. So depending on how profitable the deal is, you might get a seven plus five. So a 7% cash flow plus a 5% cap per annum. So that's a 12% return per annum. Other deals, it might be an eight plus eight, but every deal is different. Every deal maker is different. Sometimes, you know, given the fact that people can't get a great return in the banks right now, there's a lot of capital out there looking for a home. And so, you know, good deal makers have the luxury of being able to dictate terms. The better ones will make it favorable to the investor from a protection point of view. But, you know, this is really, you know, for example, in this deal, this is the culmination of 40 years of building the team, the network and so forth. So depending on, you know, who they are, you're not always going to have a variable outcome if there's huge upside and you just have to, you know, honestly, as an investor, you've just got to decide whether you can live with that or not. Mm, absolutely. Now, I'm going to throw something in the works here just to make it a little bit more interesting. 
let's say we compare this to say an Australian investment, um, you know, just go and buy a, a property and, and build a portfolio over say a, a four-year period. If this actually, this is a three-year deal, right? This one here. So, yeah. So, let's say we go and, and buy properties over a three-year period. I guess what I'm really curious is why would this one be a, a, a more ideal investment compared to go and just buy a, a property in Australia at this point in time? That's actually an excellent question and um, I want to kind of give that uh, a good answer. So forgive me if I'm a bit meandering but there's no right or wrong with investing. There's only kind of a reference to opportunity cost goals and preferences. So there's no question, no question at all that in a, in a good, strong, stable market, Australian real estate will beat in terms of a return on investment will beat most other markets hands down. And so from the viewpoint of when you when you start off as an investor, you, you have to build capital. Like unless you've got some massive inheritance sitting behind you, um, the goal has to be how do I convert my surplus income into wealth? And there's no question that, you know, investing in Australian real estate is the pathway like you know you're not going to get the same degree of leverage or ratcheting up of net worth in in any other asset class um, including shares and because I, and I can say that because I've been an avid share trader on and off at times and I'm wholly property girl now um, so you need to use Australian property to get get yourself going and to build capital so if you're a, an investor who's just starting out you have to start there the sorts of deals that we are talking about, they're not going to actually help you grow your, your, your wealth. However, my argument is that what Australian real estate is terrible for is cash flow. And so the, the question you have to ask yourself is if you stick with the traditional model of wealth building, which let's say it's 30 years, over 30 years, you build a portfolio of assets, like I think you just said three or seven years, like that's too short a time frame. You can't achieve crazy amounts of wealth in that. But to say 30 years, you you do all the right things and you build a small portfolio. Maybe you get somewhere between four and 15 properties. Then really you've got to make a decision. Am I prepared to wait the 30 years for that portfolio to be throwing off the sort of cash flow that is meaningful to me that I could live off? Or do I kind of want to kind of get to the point where I've got a bit of capital to play with and then just take a small percentage of it and put it into these sorts of deals, like the deals that you and I love, Tyrone, and we can talk about that another time, but like, and just use that to immediately catapult the income side of it. So I, I'm not actually an advocate of all one or all the other. What I'm an advocate of is blending um the best of both worlds to get the best result with the least amount of risk in the shortest period of time. And I, I think unfortunately in, in our market, the, the majority of wealth professionals are really biased towards different strategies and different investments. And I think if, you are, if you're someone who's smart and you, you really have ambitions to get where you want to go sooner rather than later, you know, maybe there's other things you want to do in life other than work or, you know, run a business, then I think you have to consider how do I blend the best of everything to get the best result? Um, and so that's why if you're comparing this project 
sorry, I'm going full circle now. Um, if you compare this project with purchasing, you know, real estate in the Australian market, it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. The reason I go into this deal is I, I'm, I've got enough capital. You know, more capital isn't going to change my life. What I need is cash flow. So I'm trying to take a small percentage of my capital here, and I still have my portfolio here, but how can I deploy some of my capital into these sorts of deals so that I can 5x my income? Thank you to Selena Kilkarni from Freedom Warrior, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short six months. To register interest, Text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone.